Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Good morning. It's been a long time uh, that I've wanted to come to Christ Church, and because of my work down at Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, which was the, the church that sent Scott and Marissa and about a, a dozen or more others uh, up here to plant in Madison. Because of my work there, it's hard to get away on a Sunday morning. Uh, but I'm so glad. Julie and I are so thrilled to finally be here. We pray for you often. Uh, we support you um, in, in prayer financially. We, we just love this church. We want to see this church grow. Uh, so what a privilege for me to get to serve you in, in place of Scott uh, while he's away in, in England. Poor Scott. Uh, I'll, I'll do my best to, to throw in a few Scott mannerisms. I love the yes, no, yes, yeah, no, yeah. Um, 100%, 100%. If you've been around Scott, it's like, you know, I've got 2%, I've got whole milk. I don't think I've got 100%, bro. Um, there's nothing I can pick on for Marissa because, as you all know, she's practically perfect in every way. We love Scott. We love Marissa. Well, I'm thrilled to be here this morning and to, to preach about prayer and to teach on prayer. Now, there are many kinds of prayer. As we even heard Paul writing in, in, to, in the letter to the Ephesians, pray in all kinds of prayer. So the prayer that we're going to focus on this morning is the kind of prayer that brings the kingdom of heaven down to earth. The kind of prayer that, like in Ephesians 6, when Paul is writing, he's saying, we're, we're not just contending with, with flesh and blood here. We're, we're contending with spiritual realities. We're contending for the kingdom of heaven in the midst of a kingdom on earth that is set up and directly opposed to that kingdom, to the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. We're contending against that kingdom for the kingdom of Christ, for the kingdom of light. How shall we then pray? What's the prayer of faith that actually changes things? So I'll begin by sharing a story of a time that I got to be a part of an amazing story where, where prayer like this changed something and brought the kingdom of heaven down to earth. In the grand scheme, or in, in the history of the world and of the billions of people on the planet, probably small and, and not a very important story for most people, but for those who were involved, an incredible story, a life-changing story the kind of thing that eight years later I'm still telling. So we had a friend at church, uh, a family, a couple, the Ronies, Scott and Sarah, and they tried for many years uh, to have children. They were unable. And so they adopted a son named Judah. Now when they went to pick up Judah from the community in Texas that he was from, the, the birth mother, they, they had a relationship with the birth mother. They got to know her, actually developed a friendship with her. They never met the dad. And as often is the case, he was not involved, didn't want to have anything to do with this. And because of this, the, the agency that was overseeing the adoption never went to him and have him sign away his rights to be the father in the same way that they did for the mother. She signed away her rights. She said, no, I, I give this child to Scott and Sarah. They are now his parents. So they take Judah home, and... Uh, they're about two, three months into loving this little baby that they took home from the hospital. When they find out, call from the adoption agency, the father wants Judah back. I won't go into all the reasons why, um, but all of a sudden, he did a complete 180 and decided that 
he didn't want these people from far away and from a different cultural background raising his son. And he got his community around him, and the agency just started to prepare Scott and Sarah. They said, look, because he didn't sign the papers and because he is the biological father, you have no chance. Just prepare yourself. So Scott and Sarah are heartbroken, absolutely devastated, and they do not know what to do. I mean, talk about a Red Sea moment. The sea's in front, Pharaoh's behind, we see no way forward. And so we just began to pray. Now, because this is adoption and, and lawsuit and paperwork and all of that, it, it actually took several months before things started moving along. So they still had Judah, and now it's five, six months. That he, he's five, six months old. They still have him. He's part of their family. And yet in their hearts, they're thinking, we're going to have to give him away. We called their small group and others from the church who knew them to a night of prayer, and we cried out to the Lord on behalf. And you know, when Jesus, in, in this passage that we read, he talks about impudence. I'll, I'll say more about it at the end, but he talks about this almost offensive boldness. I remember not only that night when we were all gathered for prayer, but in, in, in our apartment, just on my own, pacing around, and basically almost like Elijah, too, with the, with the widow's son, saying, God, have, have you sent me here so that this widow's son would die? I remember saying, how can you do this? Can, can you let them take Judah away? Far be it from you. You can't do this. I saw Scott and Sarah uh, a couple weeks later and just asked for the update. How is it going? And Scott, he said, well, I mean, just the next thing. Just one more hoop to jump through. They've asked for a DNA test from, from, the, from the man, the father. And we have to pay for it because we have to pay for everything in this. And it's just going to delay the process a few more weeks till they get the results and just one more hoop to jump through. And they said, we already talked with the birth mother. We looked her in the eyes and we said, is there any other way? This, this man is not the father. And she said, there's no other way. There's no other man. There's no way. So this DNA test, it's, it's just, just to jump through a hoop. So they pay for the DNA test. A few weeks after this, I, I see them again, and everything has changed. I said, Scott, what is happening? He said, you will not believe what happened. The DNA test came back, and it was 0% affirmative. I said, are you kidding me? He said, no, that's exactly what happened. 0% chance, everything is dropped, the case is done, we keep Judah. The sea opened, they made their way through. And I saw kingdom of heaven come down to earth for the Roni family. So the disciples come to Jesus. And they begin with this request. They say, would you teach us how to pray? And so every single one of you here this morning, you have one of two requests that you can make. You can say, Jesus, would you teach me how to pray? Would you teach me how to pray in a way that is bold? Would you teach me how to, way, to pray in a way that brings the kingdom of heaven down to earth? That could be your request like it was for the disciples. But if that's not you this morning, if you're here and you don't have that hunger for prayer, you're not necessarily thinking, I want to see the kingdom of heaven come down. Then your, your request to Jesus is, Jesus, can you give me that hunger? 
Can you, can you give me a hunger and a desire for prayer so that I will come to the place where I say, okay, now teach me how to pray. But wherever you are this morning, you fall into one of those two categories. You're either ready to say, okay, Jesus, teach me how to pray. Increase my prayer. Increase my faith in prayer. Or you're here to say, I'm not there yet, but Lord, would you give me at least the hunger for prayer? So as we look to Luke 11, and you can have that in your bulletin or in your Bible if you've got that in front of you. They come to him, they say, teach us how to pray. And then he gives them the Lord's Prayer. This teaching, of all the teachings of Jesus, I don't know how you would rank them, but of all the teachings of Jesus, this has to be at least one of the most important, if not the most important. He's teaching his disciples how to pray. And the church has taught for centuries that all prayers are contained in the Lord's Prayer. From it, you can pray all other kinds of prayers. And that's why Jesus says, when you pray, also could be translated, it's there in verse 2, not just when you pray, but whenever you pray. In other words, whatever else you're praying, start or, or end with the Lord's Prayer. Make this uh, a, a template for your prayer. Let this prayer teach you how to pray. Whenever you pray, pray this prayer. And so the early Christians traditionally prayed the Lord's Prayer three times every day, morning, noon, and night. So not only is it one of the most important teachings of Jesus, it's also one of the most relevant and applicable to daily life. We should be praying this all throughout the day. So it begins, and this is instructive for us, look what is the first line of the Lord's Prayer? Father, hallowed be your name. So prayer begins by directing our thoughts, by directing our words upward. Now there will be a place, and I'll say more about this later, for, for pouring out our heart and speaking about our needs and saying, this is what I need, God. But it's instructive for us that Jesus teaches us the way prayer begins is you look upward to your Father in heaven and you worship him. Your name is holy. There's no one like you. You're set apart. There is none like you. You begin with worship. And then after that, what is the first request? What is the first thing that Jesus tells us to ask for? Your kingdom come. Because it is the first petition that signals to us it should be our, our chief desire, the thing that we're asking for above all other things. And if Jesus told us to pray for this, then it means that he also meant for us to expect that it would happen. So when we're praying, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, because of how Jesus thinks about prayer, he's assuming that we'll then be looking for the kingdom, expecting for the kingdom to come. So when we pray, your kingdom come or thy kingdom come, we're always praying for two things. First, we're praying that come, Lord Jesus, return to the earth. You promised you would come back and that when you come back, you would make all things new, that you would completely remove the effects of sin, of death and of disobedience. You would completely change that. You'd bring your kingdom in full. You'd establish your reign and the eternal age would begin. That's what we want. We're oriented towards that desire. So every time we say, thy kingdom come, we're saying, come, Lord Jesus, come back to the earth. So that's the first thing that we're always praying whenever we pray that. But the second thing that we're praying when we say, thy kingdom come, is we're saying, and until that day, until we see you face to face, while we yet sojourn as pilgrims on this earth, would you make the world around us like your kingdom in heaven? 
in little pockets here and there and hiding just around the corner, the kingdom of heaven is always waiting to break in. And whenever we pray, thy kingdom come, we're saying we're looking expectantly for Jesus to show up and to bring the kingdom wherever he is because that's what he did when he ministered, when he was walking through Galilee and in Jerusalem, when he was proclaiming good news to the poor, when he's setting the captives free, when he was releasing people from demonic oppression and from every physical illness and affliction. He was bringing the kingdom. And then what's so amazing is if you, if you read the story of the Gospels, and actually right before Luke 11, in Luke 10, what does Jesus do? He sends out the disciples with the same message and the same power. And so they too are going all throughout the towns of Israel and they're proclaiming the kingdom and they're also bringing the kingdom through the power of Jesus. Just by the way, that was not meant to be a, a, a one-time thing. And it was not meant to be only relegated to those special few. Those stories are there in the gospel to, to show us now, this is what Jesus is wanting to do even now, even at Christ Church Madison, even in your individual lives, is he's saying, I want to give you authority to proclaim my kingdom and then actually to see my kingdom come in your life, wherever you are and whatever you, you do. Now, as I get going on this theme, I actually think about myself and when I might be sitting in, in your shoes hearing some other tall, skinny guy preach ardently about the kingdom coming, or just in my own reflection on my life when I'm thinking about the prayer of thy kingdom come, or, or I'm thinking about this God that I, that I believe in and I worship, and I don't know about you, but I, I often find myself living in this tension where I believe extraordinary things. I believe in the scriptures. I, I believe that the Bible tells about a crazy, incomprehensible power of God who's good and loving. I believe everything the Bible says, that he's extraordinary. I believe things, and I profess a faith that does not make sense to the average Western mind. It's extraordinary. I believe these things. And yet, when I look at my life, I don't see too much that's extraordinary or incomprehensible or transcendent. When I read the scriptures and even the teachings of Jesus and his teachings on prayer, though, there's a part of that wonders, shouldn't it be a little bit more like that? Shouldn't it be a little more extraordinary? Shouldn't there be more evidence of this extraordinary God who I believe in, I, I, who I profess? But then the, ping, the pendulum kind of swings back the other way, and I think, or is it enough to be ordinary? I mean, isn't most of the problems in the world based on narcissism and conceit and people who are megalomaniacs and trying to accomplish their will all around the place? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be enough if, if I were just humble enough to say, actually, ordinary is good enough? My ordinary life, to be faithful in the small things because, after all, God made all things, even the small things. He made ordinary, every aspect of ordinary life, like sitting down to a meal, going on a walk with your family or friends. And he blessed every aspect of creation and called it good. And so isn't there, isn't there a way in which ordinary, just being simple and content? I mean, wow, talk about a virtue that is countercultural in our day, contentment. Isn't simply being content with an ordinary life, shouldn't that be good enough? 
Which is it? Are we meant to have extraordinary lives as followers of Jesus who proclaimed a kingdom not of this world? Or are we meant to just be content, ordinary, simple, humble folk? I won't take a vote. Of course, you all probably know the answer. Uh, if you've been Anglican long enough, you'll, you'll know that we love to do the both and thing. Why make something either or? Well, it's got to be either word or sacrament. There either has to be joy and worship and freedom or there has to be holiness and reverence. And we say, well, actually, both and. It can be both of those things. So too with this. I think as Christians, we're meant to live both an extraordinary and an ordinary life. And that there's a way that these fit together. And I'll bring it all to prayer in just a moment. Um, but before I do, let, let's just be honest with ourselves that each one of us tends probably to incline towards one or the other, right? Of extraordinary or ordinary. So some of you, you like your, your coffee venti, your pizza. Whereas for others of you, you like your coffee, you're content with your espresso, pizza extra small, personal size, and your favorite adjective is diminutive. Okay? You ever wonder, by the way, why there's no extra medium? You've got extra small, extra large, but where's the extra medium? If you ever see Steve Williamson, our, our worship pastor, you can thank him for that incredible ponder point. But we bring these inclinations into our spiritual lives as well. So if you're, if you're the one that tends to like and, and you, you get jazzed by the extraordinary, then becoming a Christian or living into the Christian life, you think, yes, thy kingdom come. I pray that with passion. I want to see miracles. I want to see revival. I want to see extraordinary things. And if you're not careful... You might get impatient with God or impatient with others or impatient with yourself. You might forget that the sacred can be found in the small and sometimes it's found there best of all. A beloved quote of Mother Teresa, who's a favorite saint of ours, she said, it's not about doing great things, but what? Small things with great love. Some of you incline to the ordinary. You're happy to look for God in the small in everyday life. And while someone over there is praying, thy kingdom come, you're sitting here thinking, okay, well, my two-year-old just pooped on the floor. I can't find my keys, and I was supposed to be at church five minutes ago just to pull a random scenario out of thin air there for you. <laughs> so you're, you're happy to think small and ordinary, but for you, you have to be careful and on your guard that the draw to ordinary isn't in fact a subtle ploy or doesn't become a subtle ploy from the enemy to lull you to a sleepy spirituality where you're no longer on mission, you're no longer praying for things that could only be explained by the power of God, you're no longer looking and expecting to see the kingdom come in everyday life. And you've lost your hunger, your zeal, your fervency, and those, by the way, the Bible says those should characterize our life. Hunger for righteousness, zeal, fervency. So, of course, we come back to, yes, a both and. This balance of maybe what we would call patient expectancy. Patient expectancy. Because this is truly nothing less than the kingdom of heaven that we are praying for. But we're looking for it where? In the humble little lives that we're all living. 
most of you have figured out by now that you're, you're not going to be anybody special or famous in the eyes of the world. And many of you have already come to a, a sense of acceptance of that. Awesome. What freedom. And now here's the great secret of the kingdom of heaven. And here's where it comes back to prayer. Where do these two fit together? How is it that we live the extraordinary in the ordinary life? Well, it's that the extraordinary breaks in and it begins in the ordinary stuff of everyday life. So the extraordinary, the kingdom of heaven comes down to earth. The extraordinary comes in and through the ordinary. And how does that happen? It happens in prayer. When we see a need and we go and we pray for it. Think about the parable that Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven being like a seed. Not just any seed, but he said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which when it starts out is the smallest of all seeds, and yet once it grows and becomes the full fruit-bearing tree, it is the largest of all trees in the garden, and birds come and make their nests in it. So he's saying that's what the kingdom of heaven like. It starts Small, like that beloved passage from Zechariah where the prophet says to those who are building the temple, don't despise the day of small things. When you lay the cornerstone on that temple, rejoice as if it was already finished. So we look for the extraordinary in the ordinary. We pray for the kingdom of heaven to come into our earthly lives. Uh, let's go back now to our Luke 11 text. And for the rest of our time today, we'll spend it here in Luke 11. And the kind of prayer that brings heaven down to earth, if you're one who takes note, uh, three things. It is, uh, well, we let need lead. Okay, so that's number one. We let the need lead the way. Number two, we're bold. And number three, we pray simply and specifically. All right, so when we're going to pray and we're thinking about the prayers that bring kingdom of heaven down to earth, we let the need lead, number one. Number two, pray with boldness. And then number three, we pray simply and specifically. So number one, we let the need lead. Well, what a relief. Because... How can we even begin to pray and to try to live into realities that are so expansive, such as the kingdom of God? How do we do that? Well, Jesus is telling us in his teaching on prayer how to do it. We let the needs that come up in everyday ordinary life be the opportunity for God to do something extraordinary and spectacular. So look at, again, to the prayer Right after he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, expansive, out of this world reality. What's the very next thing that he teaches us? Now he says, pray, give us each day our daily bread. It doesn't get more ordinary than daily bread, basic survival, the things you need, the things that are right in front of you, and the things just for today. Don't worry about what? Tomorrow. I'm telling you just to ask for what you need today, what's right in front of you. Not only that, but after he gives the Lord's Prayer, right then he tells a story in verse 5. I'll paraphrase it. 
So Jesus, in, order, in other words, his commentary on the Lord's Prayer, the thing that he really wanted us to take from it, he just taught us the Lord's Prayer. The follow-up next thing that he says is he tells a story about a friend who comes to someone in the middle of the night and says, I need bread. He just said, give us this day our daily bread, right? And now he's telling a story about needing bread. So the man shows up, he knocks in the middle of the night and says, a, a friend has come on a journey, I don't have any food, give me three loaves of bread. And the man says, I'm in bed, all my children are with me, the door is shut. No. But the man keeps knocking, and so eventually the guy gets up and says, okay, not because I'm your friend or I like you all that much right now, but because you keep knocking, in order to make you go away, I'm going to give you what you're asking for, your bread. And then Jesus says, look at verse 8, I tell you, though he will not give up and give him anything because he is his friend, nothing of virtue in this, Yet because of his impudence, the man will rise and give him whatever he needs. Whatever he needs. So Jesus is training us. Okay, yes, start with worship. Start by pointing your soul and your words to the God who is in heaven and is above and over all. But now he's telling us, but I do eventually want you to get to the place where you're bringing your daily needs to me in prayer. I want that. Because whatever you need, I will provide. And you know that as you go about ordinary life, maybe not as extreme as, as in the Roni story that I told at the beginning, but in ordinary, everyday life, you're going to come up against problems that you won't be able to solve. I remember a few years ago, uh, I was talking with a man in our church who, uh, he works in a medical company where he goes and he troubleshoots big medical machines when they break. Talk about a complicated job. So one day I was on the phone with him talking about small group stuff because he's one of my small group leaders. I said, how's it going? He said, well, we're, we're, we're putting in a lot of overtime this week. We cannot figure out what's going on with this machine. We just can't figure it out. And I said, well, Jack, do you want to pray? He said, I would love to pray. So over the phone, we prayed. It wasn't long. We kept it simple. And we just offered up what he needed to do to get his job done that week. And about 15 minutes later, he called back and said, we found the problem. So in your ordinary, everyday life, with work, at home, if you're raising children, in your relationships, you will have plenty of opportunity to see the kingdom of God come because needs are popping up all the time. Question is, are we seeing those needs as an opportunity now to go to God and say, all right, now it's up to you. You've got a problem. You've got to do something about it. Here it is. But if we let the need lead, that teaches us how do we begin to pray in a way that sees the kingdom of heaven come on earth. I was recently reading a story about Billy Graham, and he was uh, doing one of his revival crusades in New York City at Shea Stadium, which is right next to LaGuardia Airport. And the day before, when they're doing the sound check, the, the noise of the engines of the planes coming in for landing was too much. Billy said, oh, this is not going to work. And so according to eyewitnesses, he just paused right there. He said, Lord, we know you want this crusade to happen. We pray you change the wind pattern so that the planes would come in from the other side of the airport and it wouldn't bother us. Thank you for hearing our prayer. Short, simple, boom. And guess what happened? For the next three days, the wind patterns changed. The, the planes were coming from the other direction. They were able to have their crusade without the noise of the airplane. But what's interesting to me about that story, much as I love the, the faith and the, the miracle of the winds changing, 
is Billy didn't say, we want every person in this stadium to come to Jesus tonight. And that's what we're asking you for. Now, of course they were asking for that. Of course they were praying for that. But what was his need? His need was to be able to be heard. For him to do what God had asked him to do, he just, he just needed the planes to come from a different direction. That's what he asked for, and that's what God did. Now, of course they were praying for many to come to Christ. But it, it's instructive, again, to me, that in this instance, even Billy Graham is letting the need lead the way and trusting that that'll be enough. Because that's what was on him to do, right? To preach so that people could hear. The salvation part, he understood that's God's business. So number one, you let the need lead. That, that's how we pray for the kingdom to come. Number two, we're bold. That word impudence that you see there in verse 8, it doesn't just mean bold. It actually means offensively bold. Offensively bold. And I have a little note in my Bible that says, could also mean persistent. Here's how I want you to come to your Father in heaven. I want you to be offensive in your boldness to him. He said, it, it, it's got to at least maybe mean something else. But no, it means be offensively bold before your Father in heaven. We, of course, don't want to do this. We're, we're afraid that we'll dishonor God, which is a nice sentiment. But actually, what he's saying is, if you want to honor me, be bold. Come to me honestly. Tell me what's on your heart. Let's speak plainly to one another. That's what honors me. Obviously, he loves the kind of faith that says, I know you're going to do something about this. Lord, we ask you to change the winds. And so when you pray bold prayers like that, things begin to happen. You'll get answers. Prayer like that changes things. Now, it is true that when we enter into this kind of bold prayer, sometimes the answer is a refusal. Sometimes the Lord does say, no, I have something else in mind. And that's, that's actually part of learning how to pray and learning how to pray with boldness and learning how to pray with faith is not letting those no's or those refusals or the seemingly unanswered prayers totally shake our faith and throw us off. We say, no, that, that's not going to throw me off. Because undergirding it and, and beneath all of it is this confidence in the goodness of God. I'll say more about that in a minute. But all we need, all that we need, and boy, I go back to this often, when we're questioning unanswered prayer, and when it's putting us in that place of shaking our faith, we're wondering what to do with that. We just have to remember who had the most bold prayer of all time that was not answered. None other than the Lord Jesus himself, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, talk about a bold prayer. He says, Father, I know all things are possible. And he doesn't say, maybe possibly could you. He says, remove this cup from me. Take it away. I do not want to go to the cross. I don't want to suffer in this way. And then he said, nevertheless, I will obey your will. So even Jesus himself is making a request that in the way that he asked it did not get answered. Or think about Paul with the thorn in his side. Three times he pleaded, God, would you remove this thorn out of my side? And, and the Lord's response was, my grace is sufficient to you. There's a plan that I have. That thorn is there for a reason. It's sanctifying you. So I know you want that thorn gone, Paul. 
But the Lord is also saying, but I know that actually what you want even more is that you want to be made holy. And that's the prayer that I'm definitely going to answer. So be bold in your prayer. If you expect something to happen when you pray, something will happen when you pray. If you expect nothing to happen when you pray, nothing will happen when you pray. Pray with boldness. And now here's, here's the part uh, I was referring to a minute ago. All of this is based on a foundation, a bedrock confidence in the goodness of God. So look at verse 11 now. Jesus is saying, What father among you, if the son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So in this teaching, Jesus compares the Father in heaven to a surly, unvirtuous friend in the middle of the night, okay? And then he also compares him to, to sinful and, and broken fathers, earthly fathers. And he's saying, could you believe that God is even at least as good as a surly, cranky friend in the middle of the night or these earthly fathers who are, are sinful? And his point here is trust in the goodness of your Father in heaven. Trust that he is good and trust that he is doing good to you. Trust that he is good. Trust that he will do good to you. This gives us all the confidence we need when we pray bold prayers. If you don't have this bedrock confidence, when the Bible says, when you pray, pray with faith, otherwise you will not have what you ask for. This is what it means. That required faith, that bedrock faith is the belief that God is good and he will do good to me. Because if you don't have that, and I've been in seasons like this, and probably you have too. If you don't have that bedrock faith in his goodness, then what happens when you step into asking for a bold prayer? Well, then all of your faith in God's goodness and his love for you is wrapped up in whether he answers that prayer or not, the way you think he should. And then if it doesn't happen, what happens? Your faith gets shaken. And so that's why Jesus is saying, your confidence is that your Father in heaven knows what you need, he will always give you what you need, not always what you want, but he always gives you what you need, and you have to believe he is good and he will do good to you. If you believe that, you can ask for anything. You can have boldness in prayer because if your prayer is seemingly unanswered, it's not going to shake your faith in the goodness of God. That is so important. It changes how we pray boldly. It gives us the freedom to pray boldly because, again, our confidence is whatever happens, however this goes, I know that God is good. He loves me and he will do, do good to me. It's also why Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. It's because he is aware that we don't want to just use God just to get things from God. He's saying, ask for the gift, but seek the giver. In the, in the scriptures, the language of seek is most often used for seek the Lord, seek his face continually, seek his presence. So we ask for the gift, yes, ask for the things we need, but seek the giver. And then at the end of it, this business about knocking. Well, when you're knocking on a door, what's about to happen? The host is going to open the door. You're going to enter his home. All kind of prayer is this abiding relationship with God where you're going to enter into his home, you're going to sit at his table, you're going to know his love and goodness. So that's what keeps it from being a just, yeah, you just give me what I need. 
a transactional, consumeristic approach to prayer. Jesus says, no, ask for what you need, but seek the giver, and in all things know that this is about entering into the home of God, abiding with him, sitting at the table, and feasting on his love. So we let the need lead. We're bold in our prayer. And then the third thing is we pray simply and we pray specifically. With this kind of faith, we don't have to heap up words upon words. We can just state simply what it is that we're asking for. Now, you may need to do that repeatedly in the sense of persevering prayer. Pray every day for this until you see it happen. But it's not as if there's a certain word quota that finally then God will say, okay. Instead, state simply what you're asking for. Like Billy Graham's prayer was a sentence long. Or think about the Lord himself. When he did his healings, it was just with few words. Be open. The demon has left your daughter. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Just simple words that he healed and set people free. So it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be lengthy. Like my sermon is right now. Thank you. You all bearing with me. It can be simple and then let it be specific. And here's what I mean by this. With specificity, when we enter into that dialogue of, okay, Lord, help me understand, are, are you answering this prayer or not? That's easier to do when you're praying for specific things. It's harder to do when you're just praying generally. God, make me more like you. Well, that's a great prayer to pray. But when you're praying into, Lord, help me be more disciplined with X, Y, Z, with time. Well, that's something that you can then enter into dialogue about because it's specific. Or a prayer, if your marriage is falling apart and you're saying, God, save our marriage. Again, that's not a bad prayer. But even better would be, okay, God, we're going to counseling tonight. We need to be able to communicate. Would you give us the humility and the honesty to share really what's going on and the ability for us to hear and not get defensive? Would you even give us the ability to admit our wrongs and confess our sins? Help us to do that tonight. That's a specific prayer. And that prayer answered, that's going to move the ball down the field, isn't it? So when we're praying for the kingdom to come, the kingdom of heaven, to come and to fill our earthly lives, we're encouraged to remember that the extraordinary comes in through the ordinary. We're encouraged because we can let the need lead the way. We're reminded we have to be bold in our prayer. And now we're understanding from Jesus to be specific and name, here's what I need today. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are so gracious and you're so good. And you are always more ready to hear and to give than we are to ask. Would you make us children who are assured of your fatherly goodness? And Lord, would you train us how to pray? Would you give us that faith that believes first in your goodness, but then also that you want to see your kingdom coming to this world and that you actually want to see it coming through us? So we offer ourselves to you. We present ourselves to you. Use us like you did the early disciples to see your kingdom come in our lives here in Madison through Christ Church and teach us how to pray in a way that sees it happen. I know that you hear this prayer, Father, and I know that you are answering it even now through Jesus Christ, your Son. 